Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur with your host, Steve Kidd, third-generation minister and 30-year business coach. Listen in as amazing, world-changing authors, speakers, and coaches share their struggles and victories, and hear from best-selling authors' insight into how you, too, can live your life as a thriving entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur. Thanks for being with us today. Today is your day to really learn how to be an effective leader. But more importantly, today is your day to understand that you're not alone, that the difficulties you're going through, the things that are coming against you, the times when you just want to give up and quit. <laughs> you know what that feels like, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Today, we're going to specifically help you with that. See, there are some great parts about being the leader, being the boss. You know, you're the boss, right? Um, and when we were little kids or young adults even, you know, we look at the boss and we're like, wow, wouldn't it be awesome to be in charge? <laughs> I remember when I was little, you know, because I'm the youngest of three boys, I remember my dream was to grow up and be the boss of my brothers to run a company and have them have to report to me. Um, you know, little kid dreams. <laughs> um, neither of my brothers work for me and, and that's okay. But it's that kind of childhood mentality that before we are the leader, before we're in charge of something, before the responsibility is put on us, it seems like such an amazing thing that everybody wants. But then when we are the leader, when we're the one that is the buck stops here person, that can be, I mean, that can weigh on you heavy. Some of you, you know, those of you that know what this means, you know, you're raising your hand. <laughs> you're like two hands up and stand up. You are right there with me. You're like, wow, some days I'd like to just not be in charge at all. I'd like to go back to work for somebody, not be a thriving entrepreneur, not be any kind of an entrepreneur, uh, you know, not be in management, um, you know, retirement seems really wonderful. And then you look at somebody that's retired and you're like, I don't know how I would just spend my time with, with all that free time. Um, you know, I know Kathy and I have talked about how if we retired, we would just start a whole nother company and we'd be busy again, all over again. How many of you are like that? Um, but what we learn as the leader, when we're there, is, is that things are gonna come at us. There are going to be those high moments, but there's also gonna be those attacks, those low moments, those times when, when you wanna give up, when you really wanna just quit. But in those moments, in those times, there are some serious, super successful keys to being an effective leader when you're under fire. And we're going to take the whole entire episode this time talking with international best-selling author Dr. Philip Hickman about his book, 
effective leadership when you're under fire. It is really important that you understand the principles that Dr. Philip is going to share with us today and that you also can let loose of some of that sense of overwhelm and loneliness and be able to embrace that you're not alone and that you do have, because of the level of success you've attained, you do have the skills, the talents, the abilities, the giftings to be able to be effective as a leader right where you are. How many of you are really excited and interested in really up-leveling your leadership game today? I know I am. I enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Phil. And I'm so excited. Dr. Philip, <laughs> not Dr. Phil McGraw, Dr. Philip Hickman. Um, I really enjoyed it. And I'm so excited to bring it to you because I know that as the leader, and maybe you're the only one in your company, guess what? Sometimes leading yourself is the hardest one of all. Um, as the leader in your company, I know that what you want to be is an effective leader. And so we're going to focus on that today so that as an effective leader, you can live as a thriving entrepreneur. We're going to take our breaks a little early so that we can get into content with you here on Thriving Entrepreneur. You've heard Kathy and I talk about it. You've seen the workshops. You have watched as others of your friends have become a best-selling author. And now it's your turn. Let me ask you this. What would being a best-selling author do for your business? Over 80% of people surveyed said that they want to write a book, which means that if you're listening, you probably are one of those people. Now is your time because you have a message that needs to be shared. That message is not for you. It's not for your ego. It is because it serves other people. Kathy and I are here to help you share your unique brilliance with the world. All you need to do is go to wehelpyouthrive.com, check us out, and find out how you can be a best-selling author today. Welcome back to Thriving Entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome back. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur. We appreciate you spending time with us here today, and we promise that it's full of some really great tools to help you be an effective leader, even when you're under fire. I really appreciate you being here with us, and I know that you're just as ready as I am to up-level your life and your business. You know, sometimes it isn't fun to be the leader. Um, there are some real good parts about being a leader, but there also are some really difficult times. We want to talk about both the skills that you need to be an effective leader, as well as what to do when you're the leader that's under fire. To help us with that, today we're joined by Dr. Philip Hickman. His book, an amazing international bestseller, Execution by Fire Squad, Effective Leadership When You're the Target. Hey, Dr. Philip, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good. And uh, how about yourself? Doing good, thanks. 
So tell me a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, uh, you know, I've, I'm a career educator and a career student at the same time. I have five graduate degrees and a doctorate, uh, you know, kind of in every different field and discipline. But I really concentrated uh, a bulk of my career in educational leadership. I mean, I was a principal at a young age. Uh, I was a assistant superintendent and a superintendent at a young age. I was a superintendent around 34. Um, at one point in time, I was at Houston Independent School District where I had uh, 300 schools, 210,000 students, and then I was a superintendent uh, over the district in Mississippi, um, which was a, a, a smaller district, obviously, uh, and, and you know, around the age of 34 or so starting out. So, yeah, I, I mean, you know, I had a lot of great experiences in leadership, and I also have, a, you know, a technology company uh, and, and those kind of things. And so it didn't hit me that, everything that I was learning was kind of prepare me for uh, the one situation that I had, you know, for four years in the state of Mississippi uh, and really fighting for the lives of, of youngsters to, to educate them with a high quality education. So tell me a little bit more in detail about it. What was going on that, you know, cause the school was doing well. So why were they fighting you on it? Well, actually the school was not doing well. So I, I came, you know, from a lot of districts. I was in Chicago also uh, in Houston, Texas at the time. We won uh, top district, uh, urban district in the nation. So we won the Brogue Prize Award. Uh, and so I, I came from excellence. And at one point in time, you know, I, I had to make a decision to take the superintendent job in Mississippi. Uh, I had a choice between that and a very large district in California. Um, and my mentors were telling me that you know, they know that I'm a mission-driven leader and that really, you know, my purpose in life is really to affect change. And what better way to spend the early part of your career since I was young at a smaller district to where I can be real intimate and really watch and change the lives of people and also to prove out, you know, strong concepts. And so what better place did I go in Mississippi, which was the lowest performing um, education state, and I took the realm of the one of the lowest performing districts in that state. And so there's, you know, there's no other other way that things can be attributed without the methodology of what me and my team will put into place. Um, and so, no, it was a it was a it was a poor functioning district, one of the lowest. At the end, now I will tell you that um, that the data came out uh, at the beginning of this year that they were one of the top five, uh, you know, districts and growing in math and language arts. Um, you know, it went from never having no instance of technology at all, where students didn't have computers, were not exposed to technology, and to being rated one of the top 30 districts in the nation uh, in innovation and technology. Uh, and then also an ambassador for the United States Department of Education, all those kind of things. And so, but that went with a price. We know that being an innovative leader that there's a price to pay because it's a lot of change that has to happen it changes a lot of mindsets and unfortunately if you're that leader that has to come in and be innovative you're going to be subject to a lot of things i just didn't think that i was going to be subject to my life being you know threatened and, and um you know i had a, a bounty after me uh for them to murder me 
and just the guys decided not to do it because of the fact that they felt that I was a good person. Um, you know, I, I talk about it in my book where they will put for sale signs in my yard. I mean, hundreds of for sale signs every day that I will have to come early from work and dig them up and dispose of them so that my children won't see them and be afraid or discouraged, you know, about living in the, in the city or going to the school there. And so there was a lot of things, you know, death threats and, and constantly and, you know, I, um, you know, articles in the newspaper um, because the media is controlled by such a small group. And, you know, I, I had no idea coming from a big city that an individual person can own a radio station, a newspaper and the TV news uh, media. And so they control all the media. So they control the message. So there's a lot of, you know, messages sent that was propaganda, not only to kind of come under, you know, put me as the target, but also to kind of hold the children or the poverty children that I was educating to kind of hold them in a mindset that they're not doing well when they were. Was it a racially motivated thing or is it just human nature, the fighting against change thing? Well, you know, I think it was a little bit of both. Uh, and I think really, um, if you weed out race, I would say um, between a have and have nots. Um, so if you look at Mississippi as a whole, but if, uh, which is a pattern, but even if you look at my district, all the wealthy kids, and they happen to be uh, of Caucasian descent, but all the wealthy kids went to private school and all the poor kids who happen to be African-Americans, they went to uh, public schools. And, and let me take that back. Uh, whether you're wealthy or not, uh, people broke their backs to send their kids to private schools who were Caucasians. They, you can be the, one of the poorest Caucasians and they will probably be at the uh, private school, which we had a, a few in a growing population in the public schools, but it was a very small percentage, you know, less than 3% or, 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 or so. And so the thing that they did was they did not want their tax dollars to go towards educating those children maybe in a sense of saying educating those children, but also resenting the fact that they have to pay for their children to be educated and still have to pay for other children to be educated through their tax dollars. And it was said, they called them the non-taxpayers. And that was one of my campaigns. I mean, I had to go around and educate people and say, hey, this population, they, you know, they pay rent and that, that renters, the, whoever the owner is, is, is paying taxes. You know, they buy food and clothes and cars. They're paying taxes, so they are taxpayers, but they're just not, you know, in the direct sense that you're thinking of. And so it was a lot of that assumptions, and there was a lot of uh, tucking in that money. You know, the con there was a person that had the contract that was a family member of one of the board members that had a paper contract, an extensive multi-million dollar paper contract. And this person was buying paper basically from Office Max at a certain price and marketed up for the school district. I mean, didn't even have a paper warehouse or anything like that. And so I had to stop some of those things and they didn't like that. Um, you know, they, they, you know, because I'm messing with people's livelihoods, but it was, it was taken away from children and it, and it just wasn't right, appropriate, legal. You know, they will build, they will build, for instance, they built a 36 to $40 million school but the school, I mean, there's no schools that are built for that much, and especially this school. 
And so, you know, a lot of contracts are padded. So then you bring in a, a, a superintendent who's aware or that has a business acumen and that really focuses on, you know, the bottom line, which are children. You know, it was, it was, it was anarchy. I mean, they were, they were, they were threatened by what could happen. One, we were educating kids at a high rate, um, but also threatened at the fact that there's illegal things that were going to be discovered. Uh, and there were, there were a lot of improprieties that I discovered. So at the end of the day, um, and you're not there anymore, am I correct on that? I'm not, I'm not. Okay. I, I had a four year contract uh, and I was terminated a month before uh, the end of my contract, which obviously for no reasons. Um, I had perfect evaluations all four years. Um, I was you know, nominated for superintendent of the year. <laughs> and so, you know, it was those kind of things, but it was just kind of, you know, they were fed up with the fact of the success and the, the things that I was, the changes that I was making. Um, and so, you know, the board who is appointed by the mayor, um, and, and by the way, I had, when you talk about under fire, I had nine different, of uh, five member board, I had nine different board members in four years because each one was put on there to try to terminate me, but they couldn't, they, they couldn't find reasons to terminate me early, um, because I did everything by the book and, and made sure that all, you know, I's were dotted and T's were crossed because I had the training. You know, I, I didn't, it wasn't just my first time, you know, coming off the street and, and trying to uh, lead a group of uh, individuals. But, you know, it was things that I had to say. Like I had to make sure they understood that the children were our client and we would never put the needs of adults over the needs of kids, you know. And so people didn't like that because it was a, a, a an environment where everyone knew each other, everyone was related to each other, and it was based on friendship and not effectiveness. Um, one of the things that people got very upset with me, which was common sense to me, is I told them, I said, we're not a family. We are a team. Because the, the goal of a family is to take care of everyone. So they take care of the weak, and they, they fill in for that, that person, and they make up for that person. But the goal of a team is to win, and to put the best people forward to in order to accomplish that task uh it, you know and so my goal was to put the best people in front of kids to be able to win for kids to be able to provide a high quality education where everyone wanted their friend <laughs> to be there and, and whether their friend was effective or not based off the data yeah. so the school got better but the environment really even now that you're not there it's still the same yeah the, well the environment you know and in a sense it exploded uh but the good thing is there was enough structure that i w was able to really do right by kids uh we had you know we went from a graduation rate of 40 percent to 85 percent i mean that's unheard of in the short amount of time that we did it uh and so that means we had more kids who were graduating more kids entering college we had dual enrollment where kids were taking college classes in high school uh, increased 200%. For the first time, we had children who graduated from high school and also graduated with an associate degree. And so we were making, you know, statewide waves uh, of, of being successful for, for children. But, you know, the, the other thing is that I didn't have a rule book, a rule book, because, you know, 
right now where, where you have to deal with innovation, that means that you're dealing with things that haven't been done before, right? And you can only follow principles. There's not examples of people that you can necessarily follow in order to, to do that. And that's why, that, that's what motivated me to write this book, is to really kind of be out in the forefront to give, a, give kind of a guide to how to be an innovative leader uh, because you're going to be under fire. You're going to be attacked. You're going to be, uh, one of the things that I talked about was that um, when people cannot control you, they try to discredit you. Uh, and it's even funny. It's even funny now because I have, uh, under my book reviews, I have one review where obviously it's a person from that town and they say, oh, he didn't tell the whole story. And and I don't like this book. It's not worth your money. And, and you know, and all this, and they, they, they talk about me as a person and never really address the content of the book. And, and it's just, you know, and that's expected. I knew that was going to happen. I, I knew that they were going to still try to discredit as opposed to, uh, you know, because of, of the lack of control. Um, but that's just part of being an innovative leader. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really wrote this book so it can be a rule book for people. I, I actually have people calling me that I don't know that have read my book from around the United States and around the world. And they're saying, hey, can you mentor me? You know, I'm in a situation to where there's a lot of ambiguity and, and, and I need help. I need support. Uh, and so one of the things that I'm doing is I'm going to develop a course. Um, and I'm a, like I said, I own a technology company. So one of the things I'm going to do is within the course is that people are going to have the opportunity to go through simulations. And so this is kind of the first of its kind. And so they're going to go through simulations where they make a decision tree. It's going to have multimedia. So you know, a phone is going to ring, it's going to have video, it's going to have words, it's going to have text and those kind of things. And any decision that you make, it's going to show you the consequences, you know, as you keep going through that decision tree. Um, and then we talk about it. We go through the coursework, go through the standards, and we learn from our good and bad and, and just really start to think about how to be an effective leader and to incorporate being creative and being innovative you know, and, and collaborative, and even how to collaborate with a group of people that, you know, may not, that, that may be resistant. Uh, and so we talk about how to celebrate early success and early wins and, and how to shape that behavior uh, in order to be an effective, successful leader. You bring up so many powerful um, examples of effective leadership throughout the course of the book, but I'm going to ask you an unfair question. Um, what's your favorite? As far as um, examples in the book, let me tell you, the book well, is broken just, down into three, yeah. three sections. The book is broken down into three sections. So even though it you know, has a lot of chapters, the first section is my leadership story. The second section, and so that's more written like a novel, the, the leadership story. Then the second section is more of a kind of a, a, a millennial type question and answer, motivational principles, kind of light principles and, you know, advice, leadership advice. And then the third section is research based. So for your traditional reader, um, you know, generational readers that love that research and, and, and those kind of things and the research behind everything that I did. But I think the most fun outside of reliving <laughs> the leadership story would be section two, two, where you talk about where I have the leadership quotes, the question and answer, the kind of why I did the things that I did in a short synopsis way, um, 
I, I just think that that's, that's valuable. That's how this generation thinks. They need it kind of short. They need it, you know, real uh, and live. Um, and so I think that that's my favorite part. That's more impactful uh, for me um, than the other two. But people are really, once they start out with section one to read the leadership story, everybody says you can't put it down. Because it's, it's written as a novel, but it's a true you know, documentary of my, of my life at that time. And people cannot believe it that in 2018, you know, 2014, 2018, someone is going through that just to like someone's life's at jeopardy just to educate, properly educate children. Um, I think one of my favorite quotes as a leader is dealing around culture. Uh, and one of the, the quotes that I explain is that, you know, when I go to Tennessee, fruit trees are growing. And as soon as I cross the state line and I start to drive in Mississippi, there's cotton that's growing. And the reason why that's important is because the, the climate controls the culture, right? And, and, and the culture, the climate controls what grows. And so that's the same thing in any organization is that your climate, your culture is going to determine what grows, right? And so that, that was kind of, for me, it was realistic because I had to really address the culture and the climate of the school district, even though outside of the school district, it was stormy. I really had to work on, you know, the, the minute that we have children in our presence, the minute second, you know, how are we being intentional? How, you know, how are people who are coming here and they're listening to all this attacks outside of the school district uh, with their friends and families and people that they grew up with? How do they come to work and how do we control that culture to make it an, a, an, you know, a, a, a culture of continuous improvement, of, of culture of focusing on learning, you know, uh, and also a, a happy supportive culture, not only of adults, but of kids, right? And then a, a, a culture that's preparing children for the future. You know, another quote that I remember telling the teachers was, because everybody's saying, you're bringing in all this technology, you're gonna replace teachers. And I said, well, you know, technology is not going to replace teachers, but those who use it will replace those who don't. <laughs> and that was kind of a mic drop moment where, where people were, you know, upset. But, but also, I was going to make sure that everybody learned how to use technology. And so I, I kind of put in the practice of the Navy SEALs, which their regiment, regiment is continuous training, continual training. You know, whether they're not in the situation or not, they always continue to train. And that's what really made the difference was that continuous training of my people because I said things. I said things like, those who use technology will replace those who don't. But at the end of the day, it's not that it's just going to magically happen. I'm going to give you, I'm going to prepare you and give you the skills to do it. Now, whether you choose to, you know, follow through, embrace it, and implement it, that's on you. But I'm going to make sure that you're going to be successful. There were a couple of really powerful things in there, and I want to make sure that you caught them, that they didn't just go past you, uh, you know, go into your ears and kind of lodge down in there without really catching. The number one is understanding who your real client is. So Dr. Philip was talking about the fact that in his case, his client is the student, that their job what they exist to do is to provide what the student needs to learn and to grow. That's huge. That is enormous, is really knowing who 
is my client? Because often, you know, we, you know, if you use the school as an example, you know, that you could have the school board be think about them as your client. Parents often are thought of as the client. Even sometimes uh, the teachers are thought of as the client. But at the end of the day, really, the person you're trying to serve is those students. The same thing needs to be true in your business. You need to very specifically understand and identify who is your client um, and then understand how that all comes together, both how do we serve that client and still be able to afford to do it, as well as what are the needs of that person and how do we make sure we are lasered in on absolutely meeting our clients' needs. And then the second thing Dr. Phillips said was that whole concept of practice drill, practice drill, practice drill, practice drill. Your team needs to have a system and a pattern of practice. And I want to even throw another phrase in there with you because a lot of us have heard the phrase practice makes perfect. It's not completely true because if you practice always doing it the wrong way, all you're going to perfect is how to do it wrong. You need to practice doing it right. To use the Navy SEALs analogy, they practice hitting the target. They don't just practice squeezing a trigger any old way. They aim and breathe and specifically learn how to hit that target. And that's what we want with our clients. We want as a company to practice, practice, practice and get consistent at knowing how to hit that target of what they need and what's going to take them to the next level. And when we become pros at that, then our people are thriving. And we, what we find as a company is that we too are living as thriving entrepreneurs. We're going to take a break and then we'll be right back. You've heard Kathy and I talk about it. You've seen the workshops. You have watched as others of your friends have become a best-selling author. And now it's your turn. Let me ask you this. What would being a best-selling author do for your business? Over 80% of people surveyed said that they want to write a book, which means that if you're listening, you probably are one of those people. Now is your time because you have a message that needs to be shared. That message is not for you. It's not for your ego. It is because it serves other people. Kathy and I are here to help you share your unique brilliance with the world. All you need to do is go to wehelpyouthrive.com, check us out, and find out how you can be a best-selling author today. Welcome back to Thriving Entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome back. Thanks for listening today to Thriving Entrepreneur as we talk about effective leadership even when you're under fire, when you're facing the firing squad of people outside of you to effectively lead and serve the people that you're meant to serve. We're going to jump back into it right now with Dr. Philip and more insights on how to 
be an effective leader? We have a real problem, and I think it's nationwide as far as our school systems go. Um, I could go on a rant for it, but I'm not going <laughs> to you know, put my own personal in there. Um, what do you think is the underlying issue to why um, you know, schools, public schools especially, are really kind of failing these days? Right, and it's really just the, the notion that it's a dinosaur. Like, we're trying so hard to hold on to an old instructional model that is no longer relevant. And I tell people, we're trying to educate kids for our past instead of their future. And, you know, it's clear, like in research, it says, you know, when, when the outside rate of change is faster than the rate of change inside, then the end is near. And so the rate of change outside is fast. And implement technology, utilizing technology, all those kind of things, we see it. I mean, it's, it's the, you know, the, the shelf life of technology is less than a year. But then you go to the school system and it's, and it's anti-innovation and we're still using an educational model that was appropriate for the industrial society once or even further than that for the, the room room schoolhouse. But, you know, that's, that's really the, the first part of our problem. And there's innovative ways that even something simple that makes sense that people push away in the culture of education. And it's like a fraternity. Once you go into that school building, if you don't fit that culture, they, they coach you out. And that's the problem because you can come in as an innovative new teacher coming out of school and then you start to fall a victim to the old ways of the tone of culture that's set. But it's, it's just basically because we're not being innovative and we're trying to hold on to an old instructional model that is no longer relevant at all. As somebody that's been in technology my whole life, um, you know, at least, yeah, my whole life, let's just go with that. <laughs> um, definitely my whole adult life. Um, the question I always ask, but I don't know if I've ever gotten to ask it to somebody at your level is why in 2019 with you know, FaceTime on every kid's phone, <laughs> let alone all the other video technologies. Why would I want my child to learn, say, math from just an okay math teacher when they could literally be being taught by the most talented, effective math teacher in the whole world via video? Not that there would be nobody in the room, but that you know, they could actually have the best teacher in the world teaching them with really simple technology that most of us are all carrying around in our pockets. Right. Oh, I, I totally agree with you, but you, you, you have to understand, and, and I said it earlier, but you have to understand that school systems are built around pleasing adults. So they have the wrong customer in mind. Uh, and so, one, it, it acts as an employment agency instead of a business. So its job is to employ teachers, whether they're effective or not. So in order to employ teachers, then you can't reduce the employment of, of all these teachers by start integrating technology. I mean, that's their fear, right? Because then one, you're exploited because it's saying that you're not effective in this <laughs> and we have to, we have to form out um, you know, uh, instruction as opposed to using a teacher that we have or wanted to hire. Um, and again, it's, it's built around an adults. It's just that system is just built there. It's the same way that 
I had to really get teachers to implement technology in the classroom. One of the fear is that the kids know more about technology than they do. And that fear is actually, it, some of it's true, but it's not all true. Children know about the technical aspect of using technology, meaning swipe left, right. They know how to get on Instagram, all those kind of things. But there's a, there's a strong dichotomy between, even when you talk about urban kids and, and, and professional household school districts, where they utilize, in the urban community, they utilize technology just to point and click for gaming. And, and wealthier households or more professional households, they utilize technology to research, to uh, you know, explore and, and other innovative ways. And so, you know, a lot of times children, when you, when you talk to them in class and you say, I mean, they're not saying, oh, let me look this up, <laughs> you know, especially urban school districts. And so it's a learning lesson for everyone, but it's, it means that adults will have to change, you know, um, from the old system that they have. And, that, and that's really all it is. It's just that it's a system that's built around adults. It is, it's like it's an employment agency, even though we say we're not. And it's an employment agency. And that's why I remember when I said that technology will not replace teachers, but those who use it will replace those who don't, is because, you know, right now we're not ready for a robot to be teaching kids, although it's around the corner, trust me. Um, but it's around the corner to have an AI type of bot interact with children. Um, but it doesn't mean, like you said, that it may not mean that it may not be a teacher in the classroom, but there's a way that you can start to break off groups to have a, a deeper personalized view of learning in education. Does the current um, education system, do you think it'll have to get, because you said something earlier and I can't quote it exactly, but you basically said that this, the way that things are, if they stay the same, they're going to end up just being destroyed. If the rate of change outside of an organization is faster than the rate of change inside of an organization, then the end is near. Yes. So do you think that um, with that huge dichotomy, do you think eventually the school uh, system organization nationally, do you think at some point it has to just pretty well die and be reborn somewhere else? Uh, do you think that's what it is? Is that what that means? I think that, I, I do think that this, the system as a whole is going to be disrupted. But the, you know, one of the, the the other problem is that we have people who are developing technology, but not necessarily from a school standpoint, right? Because there's other issues still in that fraternity of a school system that prevents the the, the appropriate implementation that was intended for that that technological technological uh, device or tool or, or software, those kind of things. Um, but they get back to what you're saying, yes. I think that there's gonna be a level of disruption that the school system that we know it now will not be in place. And here's something that's simple. Like the, the institution, and this is not necessarily technology driven, but the institution of education is geared to educate. Well, then what's the real reason why they have sports? I mean, why, why are the school systems the one who are housing the sports teams and all those kind of things? That can be a whole separate organization. Like instead of, which distracts from the business of teaching. Right now, that doesn't make sense to everybody, but I, I guarantee you in the, in the near future that they're gonna look at, you know, how do we parcel that out? But, but it's a money-making thing. Athletics, 
athletics is a prestige thing, and it's also geared around making, uh, bringing a lot of money to institutions. But why? Why is, you know, is education fooling in a sense with sports and, and other non-related things? Um, and, and, and I'm not saying you eliminate sports. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that a, a school system is not geared, is not built to handle, um, you know, sporting teams and sporting systems. I want to move over just a little bit um, from talking specifically about schools to talking more uh, in general about effective leadership, regardless of where you're a leader at. Um, right, right. What are some things that a person really needs to do to be an effective leader? I think um, one, I mean, you, you know, you have to be data driven. Um, you know, if you're, if you're basically making decisions, <coughs> excuse me, if you're making decisions without having it supported by data and you're making a lot of anecdotal choices, then you're, you're doing your business a uh, disservice. Um, you know, you, <coughs> that's, that's kind of one of the, the key principles that a lot of people are, ne are neglecting, negating because they're going off emotions. Um, and that has its place to be intuitive um but you have to you have to base it off um data you have to make data driven decisions um and that helps with it being objective again you have to focus on culture uh it's and like i said you know the climate determines what grows uh, and so when you have buildings that are ineffective here's a principle that we talk about is that no organization can achieve past their leader and so you know you have to take a strong look at what climate or culture that you're supporting or that you're building and things that you don't address you support it. Um, and so you have to be ready to make those crucial conversations uh, and and be innovative um, and I think the other thing is again training and how to implement how to implement professional development uh, and to me, it's almost like, how do you eat an elephant bit by bit? Or how do you eat a giant marshmallow one piece at a time? And so, you know, there's ways that you can break down the learning as opposed to scaring people and giving it all at once. That's how actually I got this group to implement technology in, at, a, at such a high rate um, to be able to be noted as the top 30 in the nation. And they had no experience with technology. It was really... Uh, you know, implementing a, a piece of it. So I did like um, a backwards design. I said in 30, in, in this month, at the end of this month, what do I want people to be able to do? Or at the end of 12 months, what do I want people to do? And then I said, what do I want them to do 11 months and 10 months and nine months? So you got all the way down to the first month. And then what does that look like week by week in order for that to happen? And so we implemented things in pieces and they all fell together. And then you're whole at the end of the time period you always celebrate small success, early wins, um, because that's just the nature of people, right? They have to have some level of comfort, uh, some level of satisfaction. Um, you know, we're kind of heathenistic in a sense, and not in the biblical sense, but heathen meaning we approach things that brings us pleasure and avoid things that brings us pain. Uh, and so we have to celebrate early success in order to shape that. But Without that professional development, you shouldn't make the assumption that people should know better or that they're going to learn 
vicariously or, or through a stern speech or threats. You have to equip your group in order to be successful. So going back again to your phrase about the climate and the culture, um, as an effective leader, you can have a bad climate that you can change, whereas, you know, you can't move Mississippi into, um, you know, Tennessee. <laughs> right, 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 right. So what, do you, what are some of the primary things that really effectively help a person change the climate of, that they're currently in? Well, I mean, there's, there's things. I mean, you have to, you know, you have to get people to buy into the vision. Um, but one of the easiest ways to um, explain to get people to buy into the vision is that you sell the problem, not the solution. A lot of people get stuck at selling the solution. Um, this is what we're gonna do. This is how it's gonna work, but you sell the problem. So once people, from a cognitive standpoint, some of my degrees are in psychology. So once from a cognitive standpoint that they have that shared understanding that there's a problem, then they're more susceptible to listen to and come up with collaboratively what solutions there are to, there are to change them. Um, and so, you know, that's, to me, it, it's just kind of, you know, things like that. Um, I guess you got to understand that failing organizations are designed to fail. Uh, you know, I use the examples, failing schools are designed to, are, are designed to fail. Like they're made to do that. Every step that we're making within that organization, we got to understand that um, we're creating that system to be perfectly designed to get the results that we're getting. Uh, and, you know, and that's, we, we have to recognize that as a leader. And so that's when we're talking about, that's when I really, you know, focus on, you know, being intentional about the organization and producing what we want to produce. Um, I, I give a funny joke in the book in that section that I say, you know, if you have a pickup truck, and this is on page 81, if you have a pickup truck and you put lawn, lawn chairs in the back of it and call it an SUV, it's, it's still not an SUV. It's a, pickup <laughs> truck with, it's a pickup truck with lawn chairs in the back of it, right? And so even though we have organizations that are designed for one thing, and we're trying to use it for another, it's, it's, it's designed to do, you know, what, what it's doing, regardless of what we call it. Uh, and so, you know, we, we just have to think of being innovative. Uh, I'll also give an example. And so if you talk about like, say a school system organization or any organization, but I talk about a school is that if you have a kid that attendance drops from school when their child is in eighth grade, and they stay home and watch their brother and sister, you know, what will we call it? You know, and I asked, what are your thoughts? And most people will probably say, we need to, that's neglect. Like we need to call family services. Well, I say, well, if that same eighth grader back in the days had felling attendance um, because their parents, they had to take care of their parents' farm, you know what we called it? We built a whole education system around the agrarian society. Like, we changed the whole system of education. But today, we still use that same system, that same outdated system, you know? But so in any organization, when we have the data that things are changing, again, a rate of change outside of organization, then we need to be comfortable with being innovative 
and creative and collaborative and really disrupting, changing the, the, the way of business that we do things. So for our listeners that are more, you know, in-depth research oriented, what is one of the key pieces of research that you bring out in the book that can really help a person be an effective leader? Um, you know, if we stick to the topic that we're talking about, uh, there's really a lot of strong research on how to access the climate. Uh, and I give three steps to, you know, set a positive climate. That's in personal research. Uh, I mean, that's important research. Um, I think also which people neglect is how to use social media to engage, to, to create engagement. Um, and this goes beyond the school system. This is in businesses as a whole. You know, um, we have businesses who are failing because they're, they're refusing to engage the way that people engage. Um, and so I have a lot of strong research that supports that um, and that kind of gives you ways to, uh, you know, to create and engage those organizations. And strong research behind partnerships and, and how that's helpful. Uh, because a lot of times in organizations, we try to do too much. We try to do things that we're, again, not designed to do. We try to be a pickup truck with lawn chairs in the back. Um, and so I, I give strong, you know, research behind um, that development. Uh, Alright. Well, we like to be good uh, teachers here on the show, and we like to leave people with something they can take action for. So somebody who has been inspired that they want to be a more effective leader, number one, of course, they need to get your book. But secondarily, what's an action that they could take right now today to help them become a more effective leader? Really, I, you know, I, again, if you flip it that we're talking about uh, making sure and instilling that your workers are educated uh, and have professional development or continuous learning. As a leader, you have to be able to uh, be a lead learner. Um, and so you have to be in the forefront of learning and building your capacity, um, which, is, which is highly important. Um, the other thing is that you, you have to learn how to immediately, you have to learn how to function under ambiguity. Because we're in, in an area that you have to be innovative now in leadership, and, and um, you have to be able to pivot at any given time. And that's, that's what's hurting our leaders. Uh, the difference between being effective and ineffective is that they're not able to pivot, that they're still stuck uh, in one style and they're not eclectic. Uh, and we're dealing with a generation of, of people who switch jobs. You know, we have a millennial generation, if they're not comfortable, if they don't feel respected or, or whatever it is, they rotate jobs and, and we have people in leadership who believe in longevity, right? Who believe in, uh, you know, people working at the same job for 20 or 30 years. And if you continue to have that philosophy, you, one, you create a, a negative culture because you're frowning on people who are doing what is part of the culture nowadays, which is that transition. And two, you're not, you're not taking advantage of how to effectively bring out the potential of those individuals when you have them for two, two years, three years or whatever. The same thing is uh, if you look at it in college basketball where they have an environment of kids that are one and done. And so how do you effectively draw out the best potential of those 
individuals, which happen to be younger than, than, than other individuals that stay for a long time, how do you, you know, how do you change your coaching style? And we have some of the best coaches in the world, Mike Chichesky and, and all those other coaches who, who adapted to the clientele that they have as opposed to trying to make people adapt to them. Good advice. The book is called Execution by Firing Squad, Effective Leadership When You're the Target by Dr. Philip Hickman. Dr. Philip, I really appreciate you spending some time with us on the show here today. No problem. I appreciate you interviewing me. Uh, also, it, you know, I appreciate those who bought it and supported it for it to be a bestseller. Uh, look out for classes, uh, online classes that I'm going to have. You're going to be able to get to talk to me uh, through video conferencing, one-to-one and -one in, in, in small groups as well. So it's going to be worth your while to really, like you said, purchase the book, look for classes so that you can grow as an effective leader. Uh, and, and I'm going to do book signings and workshops in a, in a city or town near you. I hope you really enjoyed that. I got a lot out of it. I hope you did too. We are going to take another quick commercial break and then we'll be right back here on Thriving Entrepreneur. You've heard Kathy and I talk about it. You've seen the workshops. You have watched as others of your friends have become a best-selling author. And now it's your turn. Let me ask you this. What would being a best-selling author do for your business? Over 80% of people surveyed said that they want to write a book, which means that if you're listening, you probably are one of those people. Now is your time because you have a message that needs to be shared. That message is not for you. It's not for your ego. It is because it serves other people. Kathy and I are here to help you share your unique brilliance with the world. All you need to do is go to wehelpyouthrive.com, check us out and find out how you can be a best-selling author today. Welcome back to Thriving Entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome back. Wasn't that awesome? Didn't you get a lot out of Dr. Philip Hipkeman as he helped us understand that even when under fire, even when facing the firing squad, that as a leader, you can and should be effective to meet the needs of those you're meant to serve. You see, and I want to really laser in on this just here for the last few minutes before the end of the show, I want you to really stop and think for just a second. I talked about it in the last break, just before the last break. Who is your client? I want to take that another step further. Who are you meant to serve? All of us are put on this planet and all of us have a message, a fire, something in our belly that just needs to come out. And they show up in a myriad of different ways. Sometimes it's as simple as a kind word that we give as a cashier someplace. But that's our mission, is to have every single person that comes through our lane have their day brightened potentially just a little bit more because we're going to do everything that's in us. Um, you know, a mother raising a child with values. Powerful, powerful thing inside of them. 
yeah, there's people that they're meant to be the president, to, to speak from stage, all of those kind of things. It doesn't matter. It's not a matter of qualifying that message in you. It's a matter of that message is in you. Absolutely. And now here's what you need to understand. That gift, that talent, that message, it was never meant for you. That's right, I waited a second because I want to let that really sink in. It was never meant for you, never. It was always about who you were put on this planet to serve, the message that only you can bring to the world. You need to be more than anything else the effective leader of you incorporated and powerfully show up in the world to do that thing that is yours to do. If you don't, the way that the world works, somebody will come in and kind of fill the gap. That's just kind of how God has things put together so that nothing ever really gets dropped. But no one, I promise you no one, is ever really going to replace you. It just can't be done. There's only one you. And you are uniquely brilliant. You were created for a purpose. And the world needs you. It's time to share that thing that is within you with the world. To yes, join us at Bestsellers Guild and get that message out in the world. But more importantly, to embrace that you have something that has to be shared. Just like Dr. Philip Hickman shared with us today how he learned to be an effective leader under fire while facing the firing squad. You have that thing that you need to share. And now, right now, is the time for you to do that. I want you to know that Kathy and I are here to help you, to share your message with the world, to live every day of your life as a thriving entrepreneur. We want that for you. It's yours. It's time to take it. Until next time, Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. If you want to get your question answered, send an email to questions at wehelpyouthrive.com. We look forward to you joining us again next time. You've heard Kathy and I talk about it. You've seen the workshops. You have watched as others of your friends have become a best-selling author. And now it's your turn. Let me ask you this. What would being a best-selling author do for your business? Over 80% of people surveyed said that they want to write a book, which means that if you're listening, you probably are one of those people. Now is your time because you have a message that needs to be shared. That message is not for you. 
It's not for your ego. It is because it serves other people. Kathy and I are here to help you share your unique brilliance with the world. All you need to do is go to wehelpyouthrive.com, check us out, and find out how you can be a best-selling author today.